0: We come to you, our God. We are not performing an empty act of ritual. We are coming before you, our God, the living God. We need you. Not just right ideas or truths about you, although we do need all of that. We need you, to whom all those truths point and lead. Stir our hearts by your word today, we pray. Humble us, humble us, chasten us, lift us, empower us, cause our hearts to burn as you open your word to us, as once you did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this is a completion really of last week's sermon what I began last week I mean to complete this week I do say mean to but I do mean to it's one thing to be commanded to do something that's a fairly straightforward thing if I say please stand up you have the choice you're going to stand or you're not that's one kind of a command but to be commanded to feel something or to be commanded to desire something that's a very different thing isn't it and that's exactly what Peter does here in 1 Peter 2.2 2, where he writes, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Well, he doesn't just say read it. He doesn't just say memorize it. He doesn't even just say believe it or obey it. He says long for it. He speaks to our affections. He, he speaks to what draws us, what stirs us within what compels us and commands us. Well, that kind of a command really has to have an impact on our view of what the Christian life is. If we viewed the Christian life as simply a set of morals, do's and don'ts, if we viewed it as just a set of doctrines, this is true, this is false, a command like this challenges that, isn't it? Because this isn't exactly in those categories. This probes our heart at the level not of just Whether we obey or not, whether we believe or not, it probes us at the level of what? Whether we desire or not, whether we yearn for or not, whether we crave or not. This command probes us and seeks deep within us. So I'm doing all I can to make biblically clear what we're seeing here and the impact it has to have on us. So let us begin first with Roman numeral one, what I call a pivot, P-I-V-O-T. What's a pivot? Well, you're in one direction and then you turn to the midpoint and then face the other direction. So we're going to take a look at what we saw last week. Then we're going to reflect on that and its implications, and then we're going to turn to what we're considering today. Now, don't think of this as something to tune out. It's, it's not. This is very important to getting the full benefit. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, I very much encourage you to go get it online and, and, and listen to it. So let's review. Basically, we saw... Two things from 1 Peter 2, 2, which I just read to you, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We saw, first of all, God's command to desire. This is a command of God. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a statement of fact. It's not simply saying it'd be nice if we did this. This is as much a command as the command to repent, to believe, to love our wives, to respect our husbands, it's a command of God. And so we first thought about how remarkable it is just in itself to command that we crave. And that again takes Christianity out of the, out of the realm of something that can be simply done by people with enough will to something that requires a miracle of God. Because why? Because this is not our desire Apart from Christ, it's nobody's desire. As we've spent weeks looking at what the Bible means by faith, we've seen that it's quite impossible for an unbeliever to look within himself and stir up faith, saving faith, because faith involves not just seeing the facts of God and not just realizing that they're true, but actually resting on those facts, embracing those truths, and submitting to them. And Paul says in exactly so many words, this is not within the capacity of an unsaved man. He says that the person in the flesh is not able to subordinate himself to the law of God. It's foolishness to him, Paul says. He hates it, Paul says. And he says a great deal besides. So, How do we do that? And the answer is, we can't. The answer is, as Jesus said, we must be born anew. We must be born from above. And like the wind blows where it chooses, the Holy Spirit breathes where He chooses, and He gives eternal life according to God's eternal decrees. And so, it's something that comes as a gift. As Peter says, God gave us new birth of His own will, of His mercy, James says as well, he gave us new birth. John says, not by the will of the flesh, not of man, but of God. And so this is, this is a remarkable command because it's not a command we can obey in ourselves. It takes a miraculous act of God. And it's also a remarkable command in, in our setting because normally, as I say, uh, Christianity falls into people who are, all passion and little truth, or all truth and little passion. I didn't put it that way, but there's another way of thinking of it. Isn't that true? The the, the people who are the most passionate and inflamed are the people who are shackled by errors, word, faith, uh, fake gifts, and, and whatnot. They're shackled by one error or another, but they're very passionate. Or then the people who are very correct about biblical things are also very ingrown and very quiet. And, and very kind of anemic in, in, in feeling in worship. And so this is a remarkable thing and that God doesn't say, oh, that's okay. It's just important that you think right opinions. Now he says, desire my word, crave, long for, like a baby craves milk. So you crave the pure, the unadulterated milk of the word. So it's, it's remarkable. And then on the other hand, I also showed you it isn't remarkable in the Bible. It's remarkable when you think about it, but in terms of the Bible, it's really something we see all over the Scripture. Do you remember? Did you look at those yourself? I pointed you to Psalm 19. Psalm 119 is just two little samples that are filled with, that to the believer, the Word of God is sweet. It's sweeter and more valuable than gold, more necessary than daily food, longed for. David writes, if, if he wrote Psalm 119, my soul is crushed with longing for your ordinances. And so this is even before the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ before the gift of the New Testament, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And still we see believers just inflamed with desire and, and with affections towards God and towards God's Word. And that's very challenging and probing to us. And we talked about the challenge this provokes to us, that if we, if we look in ourselves and we see, well, I've never felt that. I, I have never. The only time I open my Bible is when my wife does or my husband or when the pastor says, turn to this passage, or when there's a family Bible reading and my parents make me, that's the only time I, I never open it because I want to. I, I don't even know. <laughs> you might you might as well be speaking Lithuanian. You talk about reading the Bible because you're, you're hungry for it, because you desire it, because you need what's in it. I have no idea what you're talking about. You, you might be quacking like a duck uh, for all the meaning it has to me. And I said, if—if if that is your testimony, then... You are almost surely not born again. You don't know what it means to be a Christian. You might be moral, you might be religious, you might be a hundred things, but you're not born again. Because being born again involves the gift of a new heart, of a new nature. And with that new heart comes a new set of desires and of affections. We begin to learn to hate things we used to love and love things we used to hate. That's what, that's what the new birth does. It's not just a theoretical thing. It's not just on paper somewhere up in the vaults of heaven. It takes place in my heart. I'm born again. It's not just written that I've been born again somewhere outside of me. I'm born again. I'm made, what is uh, 2 Corinthians 5? If any man is in Christ, he is a a new creature, a new creation. He is a new creature. Well, that's got to mean that I don't know, you know, I mean, I did go to seminary, but I think I think it means he's a new creature. He's not what he used to be. New principles and desires and powers. A new heart has come. So we, we dwelt on that at some length, and now... Having that 's that 's the uh, oh, and second, we also talked about our ability to desire, just the fact that how can we, when, as Paul says, the man of the flesh he, he doesn 't see these things, he doesn 't see their beauty, he doesn 't welcome them, he hates them he 's unable to submit to them. How can God call us to desire them, and as we said it 's only because we are newborn babes because as Peter says. Uh, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again or born anew to a hope that is living because of Christ's resurrection. And so we can be commanded because we're new people. Because he puts within us the ability to hear and respond to this command. That is a work of God. And it is indeed a command that he expects us to, having equipped us, having literally moved heaven and earth to put us in the place where we're able to, he calls us to, calls us to desire his word. So that was, I forget if I said this, that was review. If I didn't fill in letter A for you, I apologize, but the, uh, the word is review. Did I? I did. Whew. Okay, then I take the apology back. I'll reserve it for later. Uh, letter B, let us reflect together then on some of the implications of this. Now, this is very important. I, I remind you, like the Word of God, but not to the same degree, obviously, sermons are supernatural. In a sermon, if a man is preaching the Word of God, it's the Word of God he's preaching. And Christ speaks through that preaching of His Word. And the Holy Spirit moves through the preaching of God's Word. It's supernatural, but it's not magical. Uh, What's the distinction? Uh, Magic just works automatically. I mean, if, if magic worked, you could just say some command and something would happen. But this is supernatural. It works on the hearts and wills of people. And so I ask you then, what impact did last week's sermon have on you? You say, well, I wasn't here, so none. Okay, I understand that. But assuming you were here then, what impact did it have on you? Well, somebody might say the same as usual, which is to say I, I tend to forget it as soon as I walk out of the church. Well, that's sad. And that's sad. Then what did you come for? What, what was the, the purpose of coming to church? Is it to check a box? I, I think there's better boxes to check then. But we come, or our call to come, that we might be fed, that we might worship, that we might learn and serve. We'll, we'll see more of that later today. But we, whether it's our purpose in coming or not, we hear God speak to us. And every time God speaks to us, we respond. You say, no, there you should apologize. You meant to say we should respond. Oh, no, I said exactly what I meant to say. Every time God speaks, we respond. We respond by ignoring what he says or actively rejecting what he says or we respond by embracing what he says, holding it. Acting on it. So we always respond. Last week, his word was preached. Uh, What have I done with the sermon? James urges us not to be forgetful hearers. In James 1, what's a forgetful hearer? He's like a guy. (laughs) He's like a guy who looks in a mirror, sees his face, and walks away forgetting what he just looked at. He he saw he had a piece of toilet paper stuck on a cut and forgot about it. Forgot to pull it off. Doesn't find out till later because that's a guy. And so uh, he says, don't be hearers of God's word like that. When you hear God's Word, you look at it, you think about it, you reflect on it, you take it to heart. Well, I'm asking, did we? Because I want to remind us all of of the heart of the matter of Christian living and Christian worship. The heart of the matter is not simply building an inerrant database about God, that we're in possession of the right statements and assertions and denials about god but you pick up your bible and you've got that right there here's an inerrant database about god am i done now because i possess such a database am i done no see here's the really tricky part (laughs) getting what's in here where in here (laughs) getting it into us and that's exactly what we've been talking about The heart of the matter is not building a database. The heart of the matter is building a relationship with the living God on His terms. And these are His terms, and this is how we relate to Him. This is how He speaks to us, and it is in terms of what we hear that we approach Him, know Him, commune with Him, worship Him. But it's all about that relationship, not simply amassing facts and information, but believing, embracing, yearning for, and living from those truths. So, we learn that the Bible is not an owner's manual about God. you hear me? It's not an owner's manual that if I do this, this, and this, then I can make God do what I want for me. I drop this coin and pull this lever, then out of the slot will come what I've named and claimed. That is not the Bible at all. The Bible also is not a list of instructions for if I, if I avoid these things and I do these things, then I know I've made God be on my side and I can count on Him to back all my plays. If you can even remember back uh, far enough to when we were in the book of Matthew, to which I plan to return shortly, who was it who did that? Who was it who took the Word of God and so codified it and systematized it that if they checked certain boxes, then they could know that they were okay with God? Who did that? The Pharisees. And so many Christians approached the Bible in the same way. Well, I have checked this box, this box, this box. I figure I'm done. And there's no more desire in their heart for the word of God than there is in this chair, assuming there is no desire in that chair for the word of God. And see, that's what the relationship with God is. It is a living relationship of of created persons to the one infinite person, uh, the threefold infinite person, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, having reminded you of all that, I ask you now: What did you do with last week's sermon? It it called you to action. It called you to thought. It called you, all of us, it called me, to searching of the heart. Well, well, did you do that? Did you go to those scriptures? Did you reflect on that? Did you look at your heart and see, do I have desire, no desire, sometimes desire? And and having done that, what what did last week's sermon say to do? It would be a very false thing to say, well, we didn't talk about anything to do about all this. I, I am certain that I did talk about something to do. If I find that I've never desired such a thing or if I find that I used to but I don't what did we say that we should do what should we do go to Jesus thank you thank you glory to God well did you if you found that you used to have that desire but it's gone have you gone to Jesus every day have you knocked and knocked and sought and sought as he promises we'll find has has he seen you every day urgently at him saying and pleading with Him and bugging Him until you know He's heard and warms the desires of our hearts? And if you found that you didn't know Jesus, did you, did you get um, serious about seeking after Jesus? Because I, I want to say now as we're about to pivot that if, well, no, I heard all that and I, and I, you know, I knew that I was supposed to, but no, I didn't do any of those things because I, I want what I think you're going to talk about this week, then I have to say in will candor, I don't think this is going to do you any good either. Because if we don't see that this is all about relating to God, and that's all our Christian lives, and that it's not workable simply by a formula, but by seeking God according to His truth, then I don't have anything additional to say. Then that's, that's the first thing that needs to be in place, and we really can't skip it and go on to the second thing that we're going to look at Some this week if if last week's didn't drive us to prayer well then i don't have something to take the place of seeking god do you you see what i'm saying i don't have well you know i don't really want to pray about this i don't really seek god about this but if you give me five things i could do to make this happen i'd look at that well then you don't get what we're talking about do you follow me any more than, than if, if a past if a, suppose I was counseling a I was walk over here, let me walk over here. I was counseling a, a husband in a troubled marriage and I, I saw, well, really the heart of the matter is you just you don't love your wife like you should. Maybe you did, but you don't now love your wife like you should. And we talked about that and I confronted him with scripture and I encouraged him. And and I came back next week and met with him again and he's still pouring out bitterness and anger and, and blaming and, and, and I say wait a minute, what, what did you do with what we talked about last week? He said, well you know, I bought her flowers, got her chocolate and I came home right after work every night okay, well are those things a loving husband might do? Not a trick question, yeah does that mean he loves her? Is that a substitute for going to the heart of the matter? You just do those actions, does that mean that there you are, there's no more to look at? No, you see, and so this is what we're trying to probe at here. So with that said about as as well as I know how, letter C, we're going to resume and get back into it, but knowing that if, if last week's sermon had no impact, don't be too surprised if this week's doesn't help either. I would really encourage you to go back, Take a more serious look at that, and that sets the stage for what we're looking at this week. Okay, so should I go on, or should we just play the sermon from last week? All right, Roman numeral two. We'll focus together on godly desires, and the first thing we see, uh, we see first, because Peter puts it right here in the context, we're going to look at the foes of godly desires. We're going to look at the foes of godly desires. Now, how does he put it? He says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. <clears throat> so he puts it in terms of spiritual appetite, and he urges us to have, commands us to have, a healthy appetite for God's word. It's not just a formality, but it's something we need, and we know we need, and we're driven by need. Okay, let me ask you a simple question, not a trick question. If you, what is the best way to kill your appetite What's the best way to be sure that when dinner time comes along, you could not touch another bite? What's the best way? Uh, huh? Well, yes. <laughs> now, I didn't say a good way, but that, that would answer that question, too. No. Oh, I did say the best way, didn't I? Okay, yeah, that'd be about the best way. But yeah, the, the, the answer is right. If you stuff yourself with something else, particularly if I stuff myself with, with junk food all day, I'm just eating pretzels and cookies and chips and everything all afternoon, and then dinner time comes and plop down on the plate goes this sizzling, delicious, perfectly marbled, perfectly seasoned steak... All right, get myself back on. I put that down there because I'm thinking it now and I'm thinking how delicious that would be. But I put it there on the plate. I just can't touch a bite of it. Why? What's wrong with the steak? Or oh, not one thing wrong with the steak. What's, what's wrong? I've stuffed myself with junk. My belly is full of junk, and so no, I've got no desire. And any uh, blame on the meal? Not at all. No, the blame is me. I, I I I I couldn't touch a bite because I'm so stuffed and so full of junk. Well, that's where Peter starts here. If we're to have a healthy appetite, we've got to make sure we're not stuffed with junk. And so the first foe that he looks at in verse one, the first foe is being stuffed with unloving vices stuffed, S-T-U-F-F-E-D, with unloving vices, V-I-C-E-S. What does he say? Therefore, verse 1, verse 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, now, well, there's five vices there. So the first question I want to ask is, what do all these five vices have in common? And, and for the answer, go back to chapter 1. You've got it in your outline. And look at verse 22 and 23. But He just told us, just before this verse, he said... Since you have in obedience to this truth, purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. Wow, is that emphatic? A love for the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, that is through the living and enduring word of God. So what do all these five vices have in common? They're all the lack of love. They're all the opposite of love. The person who has any or all of these vices is not a person who is fervently loving his brother from the heart, as Peter said, who is not showing... Well, look at that. A love of the brothers without hypocrisy. And one of the things that we're to lay aside is hypocrisy. So... Definitely, we're to tie those together. So what do all these five vices have in common? They all have in common that they betray a lack of love. Now, that's interesting. I'm just going to pause there for a second because I, I have known people, perhaps you have, who are all about Bible doctrine. They want to be taught Bible doctrine, but they don't want to spend time with people. And maybe they even love the church, just not so much the people in it, but the concept they're 100% for but they can't find a church that they can stay in because every church keeps being filled with well people <laughs> and they have trouble with people and so there's this thought that well I just can relate to God but I don't relate to people but you see that that is just not going to work here when he's about to tell me to desire God's word what he says is but, but if you want to do that first thing you got to do is make sure you put all the malice towards other people out of your heart what does that have to do with that? What does whether I love people or not have to do with whether I desire God's love or not? Well, if I go to God's word and listen to it, what am I going to hear it tell me? The first thing I'm going to hear it tell me is love God with all my heart. Oh, cool. So I want to love God. What does God want me to do? Well, the second thing he says is, Love your neighbor as yourself. So, Oh, now I'm not so hungry for that word. (laughs) That was what I had in mind. I didn't have, we used to say in my family, I didn't have my face set for that, you know? I really had my face set for something crunchy, and that's something gooey. I wasn't really looking for something gooey. And you know what I'm saying? And so this is, in a more serious way, these are the things that put our appetite completely off. If we are characterized by any of these attitudes... These five vices, we're not going to have any desire for God's Word because God's Word will rebuke all those things. God's Word will call us to repent of all those things. It'll call us to, well, what does Peter say? Lay aside all those things. We don't want that because we kind of love those things. We feel comfortable with those things. We, we feel justified in those things. It's just our right to feel those things. And, oh, well, that's just, that's, that is spiritually stuffing our bellies with junk food. Do you follow? So, second question. How is this list organized? You see one word repeated three times, don't you? What, what word is repeated three times in verse two? Uh, one. All. Three times the word all. First is all and one vice. And then it's all and three vices. And then it's all and one vice again. So that, I think, is, is the, the, the division of these three things. The, the first, he says all malice in the Legacy Standard Bible. Having a uh, laying aside all malice. Now that word malice, you could translate badness. And, and that it is a general word for badness, probably in the context here, more in the sense of having a bad heart, having ill will in your heart. Malice. Generally, well, what is love? Love is seeking what is best for the other person. What is malice? It's the opposite of that. Wanting what is poor for the other person. Not caring about what's good for the other person. Positively wanting what will be harmful to the other person. It's the opposite of being good and virtuous. And it's the opposite, therefore, of being loving and giving. That's, that's the first. Laying aside all malice. And then secondly, there's three specific ways of being unloving and unreal. What, what did he say in chapter 1 again? He says, Having purified your soul for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, Fervently love one another from the heart, but what are these three vices? They're all faking out my brother. They're all being a, a play actor, putting on a pretense, using him rather than serving him. That word uh, I need to look at the that word translated uh, deceit uh, is the first word dolos. It means to bait somebody, to bait him so as to trick him, so as to use him and take advantage of him. Uh, the second word, hypocrisy, that's putting on pretenses, pretending to be something I'm not. And then the third word uh, is the word uh, envy, that is wanting what he has. I don't want him to have it, I want to have it. You see, all of these things are unloving attitudes. That I'm not being me and being me serving this person in unhypocritical love from the heart. I'm putting on an act. I'm, I'm I'm manipulating him. I'm using him. I'm telling the truth. I've known people who believe that they're Christians who pride themselves on how good they are at concealing truth from other people and letting them believe things that aren't true. I don't see that as a loving, uh, a loving grace. Um, we seek to be ourselves and to serve in love. Real people serving real people in real ways. Not pretending, not um, Envying, secretly saying, you know, I wish wish that was my wife, I wish that was my husband, I wish those were my kids or whatever, my parents, Uh, but loving and serving in reality as God calls us to. And then the third kind of pairs with the first. If the first is malice, then the third is the mouth being malicious. And what is this word? uh, They translate it, slander. I would really translate it backbiting, or backstabbing. Because that's the idea. That whatever you, in the second one, you beguile somebody, you're hypocritical, you flatter them. But behind their back, behind their back, ah, oh, it's a whole different thing. Behind their back, you, you stag them. As, as one uh, commentator uh, from the 1700s, I'm going to say, on Proverbs, he said, a lot, of, a lot of men will speak daggers who would never actually use them. <laughs> but they speak them. They stab backs with their words. And that's what Peter warns against. And he says that we need to put those things aside if we are to desire God's word. Well, why? Why, why will that kill the, attitude, the appetite? I've touched on that, I know. But just again, it, poil, it poisons the soil for God's word. It's like you might as well pour a bunch of Roundup and then put in seeds. They're not going to grow. Or, or put a bunch of salt and then sow. That's not going to grow. You've just made it so it can't grow. And these attitudes will poison my heart because they don't show the love that God calls me to. So I'm seeking what God's word puts me away from. Therefore, I'm putting my spiritual palate in a bad place where God's word won't taste good to me. And it's not what I'm longing for because I'm really wanting something else in my heart. So I will have no desire for his word and and what is, verse three, we'll we'll return to this, but so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And what does growth bring? Growth brings greater love for God, greater love for others, greater ability to serve. I don't want any of those things if I'm dominated by malice and hypocrisy and guile and envy and backstabbing. So you see, this just puts our appetite off completely. So finally, what are we to do about it then when we see these things in us? Well, what does Peter say to do? Therefore, what does he say? Laying aside. It's a word that can be used for for taking clothes off. You've worked all day. You're covered with mud and sweat and smelliness and spatters. You take those clothes off and go take a bath. You're not going to stay in those clothes. and You're not going to take a bath and then put those clothes back on. You want them off. And so that's, that's the imagery here. Peter uses clothing imagery uh, that we strip these things off of us. How can we strip these things off of us? Well, because that's not what we are anymore. What, go back to verse 1. Having been born again, he says, since you've been born again, then love one another from the heart. Well, then how can we be drawn back into these things if we're born again? Oh, let me ask you a non-trick question. Are we glorified yet? No. How can you tell? Because we still have the flesh. <laughs> because we're still in the flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And that is the struggle we all have. And so it, it, it'd be nice to say, well, no, you get saved and now you're done. You know, you just can coast your way to heaven. No, that really starts the fight. See, which, which trout in a stream is fighting the current? The one that's gently floating down the stream. Creamy white belly up to the sun. He's not fighting the current. Why is he not fighting the current? He'd be dead. But this one over here. Boy he's constantly struggling. Constantly struggling. Why is he struggling? He's alive. So when we are come. Brought to life. That starts the struggle. That only ends when we see our Lord's face. And are glorified. So we 've got to lay him aside constantly we 'll need to constantly need to strip off this old man, and uh, there 's application here for husbands, wives, children, parents, friends, singles i mean there 's applications here for all of us, ways that we can be harboring these things towards the people in our life, but we 're excusing them and wondering why we don 't really have a spiritual appetite but but we harbor. Ill will towards our our husband, our wife, our children, our parents. Uh, Hypocrisy and guile and all of this envy. They need to be stripped off. That's negatively. And positively we need to desire the word because it is the antidote for these things. We'll come to that more in just a moment. But the first foe then comes from Peter. And it's these vices in verse 1. There are many, many. We could spend a long time on this. I just wanted to pluck one more one more foe and that is being choked by the world's obsessions and i get that from mark 4:19 you can turn there if you if you like now it's better if you can be looking at what we're talking about matthew i'm sorry mark 4 jesus has told the parables and the first parable is that parable of the soils and remember the third soil the seed goes into weedy soil and the weeds grow up and choke out the seed and how does he explain it in the legacy standard bible verse 19 what does it mean to say the weeds grow up and choke out the word well but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful now I would perfectly understand somebody saying Pastor Dan I'm almost certain I've heard you say that the first three soils are unsaved people yes I have have you changed your mind about that no I haven't why do you think the third soil has anything to do with Christians well let me ask you a question in return do you think that when a person is saved the world just says oh well guess I lost that one I'll just give up on reaching out and trying to ensnare him and focus on somebody else. Do you think that? You would be incorrect if you thought that. The world is the world's most dedicated evangelist. It has absolutely nothing to give us, and it constantly wants to give it to us. It has absolutely nothing to offer, and it's always trying to sell it to us. And so when a person is, is, uh, is uh, converted, Vanity Fair doesn't close down. It just, if anything, redoubles its efforts. And so to the degree that we hear it, to the degree that we uh, let our flesh respond to it, well, then these things will have the same effect. They will choke out the word in its productiveness in our lives. And so look again at these enemies, the worries of the world. What, What is that? Literally the anxieties of the age. That is, the world wants us to care most about what it cares about. What's it doing right now? What's the worst thing in the world? That anybody should die or get sick. I mean, you give up everything so that you don't get sick or die, right? Freedom, life, worship, everything. You give all that up so that you won't get sick and die. Well, am I saying that that somebody should want to get sick and die? No. But is that the Christian's greatest fear? Shouldn't be (laughs) any more. Shouldn't be any more. I know every sickness I have, God is going to heal me from it. Now understand me. He will either heal me from it in this life, or he will take me home and heal me of it forever. Do you, do you understand me? But no sickness is going to be mine forever. And when I die, that is what you call a promotion. Because what does Paul say? To depart and be with Christ is, eh. does he say, eh? oh, he says it's far better. So that's just a for instance. There's a hundred other things that the world will convince us. This is the most important thing. It changes every day. But what's going to be the most important thing tomorrow and the day after that? Don't cross state lines. You know, whatever it is. This is another thing the world always wants. Is, no, no, no. Focus on this. And the Christian, you know, to the degree we get caught up in that, oh boy, well. Or it's not going to... I remember I was sitting in a doctor's office once. I do my best to avoid the mainstream media. And I was sitting in... And th- there it was on the TV. So loud I couldn't possibly not hear it. I'd forgot to bring my earplugs. And uh, I literally do bring them to doctor's offices for that purpose. But I'd forgotten. I listened five minutes and I thought, No wonder everybody is always angry and scared. And that's what the world wants to do. Keep us angry and scared. And looking for the government to save us. So... The worries, the worries of the world, the, ang- the things that this age are anxious over, if I'm caught up with that, well, then the Word will be choked out. And he goes on, the deceitfulness of riches, the, the, the illusion that if I'm rich, I'm good. If I'm rich, I'm virtuous. If I'm rich, I'm secure. That's deceitfulness. And he, the desires for anything else. And so there it is. I mean, anything else other than the Word, which Peter calls us to desire. They enter in and choke the word, and it becomes fruitful, unfruitful. Jesus warns us. So, to the degree we accept the world's preaching, to that degree we will not desire the word, and we will not be fruitful, and we'll end up like well, what's that church in Revelation that was in that position? Laodicea, lukewarm. Do you think they started out lukewarm? No, they didn't start out lukewarm. They started out with a fire for the Lord, but it's always a danger. And how did they come to fall under this danger? I'll read you one verse, Revelation 3:17. You can note it down. Jesus, Dr. Jesus analyzes the issue right here, and he says, Because you say, what do they say? I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked uh, they had a self image that was not Jesus image and how had they gotten there the world's preaching the word, they were listening to the world's sermons they were listening to the world's sermons and believing them and so they, they have need of nothing that Peter says we should desire the word well they didn't feel that desire because they were stuffed with other things and so he says I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire and he says, I'm, I'm outside your church. I haven't gone all the way away, but I, I am outside your church. That's how bad it is. I'm at the door and I'm knocking. Well, this is the place we can get to if we listen to the world's preaching and its siren song. We deaden ourselves with that self-deception, we lose our appetite. So that just scratches the surface of some of the foes to godly desire. Let's talk some about the fuel for godly desire, letter B. What is the fuel for godly desire? I'd say the chiefest fuel is the first, faith-fired love for Christ. Faith-fired love for Christ. I see that in 1 Peter 2, 3, and then going back to chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So starting with 2, 3, he says, desire the unadulterated milk of the word if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now when he says if he doesn't mean I doubt it but it's as if to say provided that. Because if that is not true then the other can't follow. So it is true if you've not tasted the kindness of the Lord then you won't desire his word. This is so instructive. I mean we could spend a great long time on that. But uh, the taste is what gives the appetite Why does Costco put out all those Well do they do it anymore Have they started doing it again Why do they put all those little bits of candy And little bits of meat and cheese and, and whatnot? Why do they do that Because they, they want you to have a nice hearty meal No what, what do they hope They hope you'll taste this And you'll go Mmm that's really good I'll, I'll go ahead and buy that 15-pound box that you're selling. You know, right? That, that's the idea. Well, the reality here is Peter's confidence confident that if we've tasted the goodness of Christ, we'll want more. Why? Because we've been born again, and this is our food. It's Christ. It's the goodness of Christ. Now, this word, uh, the Legacy Standard Bible translated the kindness of the Lord. That's one of those hard words to translate because it's such a rich word. It it means kindness. It means goodness. It means beauty. It means graciousness. One old version translated the friendliness of the Lord. Uh, It is just for how good and delightful and desirable and perfect he is. You've gotten a taste of that. Think about that taste. Can you taste from a distance? You can smell from a distance. You can't taste from a distance, can you? I forget if I told you last week, but there's a place where Spurgeon said, "All oh, these young men keep coming and saying, you've got to take a close look at these new doctrines of ours we're teaching. And what does Spurgeon say? He says, no, he says, I can smell it from here and I'm good. <laughs> I can smell it from here and, and I don't need to come any closer. You can smell from a distance. But if you want me to taste it, you're going to have to bring it over here. I'll have to go over there. And so it is. You, you can't taste the Lord without knowing the Lord. And if you've tasted His marvelous, gracious goodness, well then, you've gotten a taste and you will want more. If you've not tasted Him, well then, you, know, you have no idea what I'm talking about and you need to be born again. To cry out to God for mercy and seek Christ, but but there it is. If you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, and and then go back to um, chapter one, verses six through eight. Now this is this is so deep. We could spend a year on this section. Might have to spend a year to understand it, and then we'd spend a year studying it. But but look at this. This is so deep. In this, you greatly rejoice. That's happy. Even though now, for a while, if necessary, you've been grieved. That's sad. We could just stop right there. Happy and sad at the same time? Yep, but in different ways. You've been grieved by various trials so that the proof of your faith, that proof being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested, which is proven, another form of the same word, by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him and though you do not see him now but believe in him you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory I'm going to try mightily to resist the temptation to just preach a whole sermon on that but but see this in those words so I am saddened why? trials and yet I have joy how? well because of Christ how do I have joy in Christ? have I ever seen him? No, Had they ever seen him? No. He says no. Well, do I see him now? No. So you're saying he's not visible to me, and yet he gives me joy inexpressible and full of glory. How can he give me joy inexpressible and full of glory if I can't see him? Well, riddle me this. What is it that takes things hoped for and puts that substance in my hand? What is it that takes things not seen and gives me a conviction of their truth? What does that? Faith does that. Our first sermon in this series, Hebrews 11.1. Faith does that. And in fact, what does Peter say? He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What it is that puts Christ before my heart's eyes that I might be filled with the affections of joy and gladness, is faith. And what is faith always all about? It's about the Word of God. And so, as looking in a a mirror, I see reflected the glory of Christ in the Word of God. Seeing Him through the Word of God, my faith embraces Him, and my affections are stirred. I feel gladness and joy and love for Him that brings light into my darkness, and Chapter two, I desire more of that word. Why do I desire more of that word? Because it makes me smarter than other people? Because it helps me say nasty things about cults? No, because it shows me more of Christ. And the more of Christ I see, the happier I am. The more of Christ I see, the happier I am. The more of Christ I see, the the more joy I have. The more of Christ I see, the more I love. And the way I see him is through his word. So I believe in him, so I desire his word, so that I might know him more. So what is the greatest fuel for these godly desires? It is faith-fired love for Christ. It is taking the word of Christ to my heart, relishing it, chewing it over and over and over to get every bit of flavor and nourishment out of it. And by that, looking at the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith. Not with the physical eye, but with the eyes that faith gives by the word of God. So that fuels that desire. And secondly, focus on God's will for us. That little bit of verse 2 that we've only glanced off of each time we've looked at that verse. Focus on God's will for us. What is God's will for us? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So, we are hungrily to desire the Word of God for one purpose that we might grow. Not just that our database might grow, not just that our ability to say things about God might grow, but that we might grow. And that brings a growth in knowledge and understanding and wisdom, that's true. And the ability to speak for God, that's true. But those are effects. But the center of it, the heart of it, is that we may grow with respect to salvation, with respect to that salvation which we have and which we also long for. It's, it's at least in in three tenses. You know, I have been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. And I grow in respect to salvation by... God's word by hungering for his word now rather than me saying there's a section of scripture that just perfectly comments on this and let's just look there Ephesians chapter 4 I'll go through it quickly when we went through the book of Ephesians we spent a good deal of time on it but I trust you're turning there Ephesians 4 and we'll go verses 11 through 16 and again I will do my best to speak only very briefly Because Paul is speaking of the ascended Christ and the gifts that he gives. And the gifts he wants to focus on all have one thing in common. What does he say? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. What do all those gifts have in common? They're all about the Word of God. They're all about conveying the Word of God. Apostles and prophets get directly from God. There are no apostles and prophets today. Evangelists preach the Word of God to unbelievers. Pastors and teachers teach it to believers. But it's all about the Word of God. And what is the purpose of these gifts for the church? Verse 12, look at it. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him. Grow up, what does he say? In all aspects unto him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself to love. What In love, what do we see here? God means for every last Christian without exception to grow unto Christ to grow and grow and grow until we are like Christ. That is his will for all of us. Young, old, black, white, green, purple, doesn't matter. God's intention is for every believer to grow up unto Christ. And so we don't crave his word just that we might grow intellectually, but that we might grow in all of us. What does he say? In all aspects, intellectually, spiritually, affectionately, in terms of what we desire and what we hate. In all respects, and so we, grave, we, we crave god 's word so that we might grow in service and again, the unloving person that 's not a motivation to him. service is something other people do i don 't commit myself i 'm like a little bee, you know I go on this little flower and then get all this, all the what do they get pollen I get the from there go to this little flower i don 't commit myself to serve anywhere. I don't put myself under the yoke and discipline and actually serve. So I I don't want to grow that way. I don't want to be obliged to anyone else. I don't want to be called on or expected to do anything for anybody else. But that's what God wants us to grow in. In service of him and in love. And so that's the purpose of desiring God's word. That by it we might grow. That's the design of this desire. So... The foes are stuffing ourselves with bad things or being choked out by the world's sermons. The fuel is faith-fired love for Christ and focus on God's will for us. And then the third thing that I'll say is we must pray, pray, pray. (laughs) Pray, pray, pray. Pray before, pray during, pray after. That's why I say pray three times, not just to be cute or because I couldn't think of other words. Pray at every point in this whole process. Why? Because it's all about having a relationship with God. And if we've got a relationship with God, we will talk to God. Not just when our parents say, say grace for food, or when our wife you know bows her head at the bedside or whatever, but we will pray through the day. We will pray. Along these lines. And I just give two specifics in this connection. First, pray for the fruit, sorry, pray for the focus of our desire. And I will just read to you Psalm 119, verses 36 and 37. Listen to this prayer Psalm 119, verses 36 and 37. Cause my heart to incline to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Do you see how much that goes with what, just what we've been saying from the word this morning? Ca- cause my heart, the center of my thinking and, uh, and yearning and, desi- and deciding, cause my heart to incline to your testimonies Turn my, and not to dishonest gain, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So we pray to God to focus our desire. And secondly, we pray to God for freedom from the junk. For freedom from the junk. Psalm 141, verses 2 through 4. Psalm 141, verses 2 through 4. May my prayer be established as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth so that I'm not backbiting. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds and wickedness with men who are workers of iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. He prays this. He prays this. Doesn't just muster his will, but he goes before God for this, and so should we. These are the prayers that we should pray to To. To kindle our desires for godly things and specifically for the word of God and I'll give you one more thing at absolutely no extra charge it would be letter D if you wrote it in this way and it would be brief and pointed and rest on me having preached this quite a few times before what is the letter D way to fuel our desire for the word of God Preach all of this to yourself. Preach all of this to yourself. Uh, If only the Bible did that sort of thing and gave us examples. The Bible is full of examples. Read, Read the book of Psalms. Read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? Himself. And he's calling himself to... Speak out of the goodness and and grace of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Forget none of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who heals all your diseases. No, the first is pardons all your iniquities, heals all your diseases. rescues your life from the pit, and so forth and so on, recounting God's blessings and goodness. But you find that sort of thing over and over again in the Psalms. Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul? Hope in God. What is that? But preaching these truths to myself, not just passively saying, all right, I'm going to wait for the pastor to give me three things that I can make this happen. No, you take what you've been taught. I take what I've been taught. I, I did this just the other day. I, I. It was the start of the day, and it was time to pray, and I just felt as dry as the Sahara Desert. I found no, no feelings for God. You say, oh, pastor, what a confession. Yeah, I know you've never felt that way, right? Never, ever felt that way. I'm so happy for you. But meanwhile, here in Realville, I, I, it was dry and cold, and, and what did I do? Say, Did I say, well, you know, I don't feel anything towards God, so I'll wait till I do, because if I worship now, it'll be hypocrisy, right? You guess I didn't? <laughs> I wouldn't be telling the story if I did in public No, no I got to myself and I as it were I got behind myself and I pushed myself towards God and I said well Lord I'm coming to you and right now my heart is cold and it's dead and it's it's dry and it's shallow and it shouldn't be because you are my life you are my creator you're my redeemer you're my savior I need you with every fiber of my being the less I know I need you the more I do need you, and you knew that, and that's why you sent Christ to raise me from the dead and not just give me advice. And what was I doing after a couple of minutes? I was worshiping. But we, the trouble is we listen to the world and drift instead of preaching to ourselves and burn. And that's what God calls us to do. So, in closing, the healthy, normal Christian life is hungering and feasting. That's the, that's the healthy, normal Christian life. It is a hungering and feasting life. If this isn't you, then I urge you, go to Jesus with it. If, if you've never felt this, then you need to come to know Jesus as your Savior and go throw yourself on, on your face before him and plead for his saving mercy. If you have known this, but it's in the past, it's not current, well, then go to Jesus with it. Pray. Go to these scriptures, go to these truths, preach to yourself, pray to God, seek this because this is healthy Christian living. And if this is you, then you keep going to Jesus because there's no place to be warm and hot other than close to Jesus, the light of the world. Amen? Amen indeed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths from your word and how they search our hearts. We pray that the Spirit of God will powerfully Uh, apply these truths and make us unable to forget them. I pray for those who've come in not knowing Jesus as their Savior, some imagining they did, some knowing they didn't. We pray that the Spirit of God will hold before them the glories of this true and living Savior and draw them to see their great need of Him, draw them to come running to Him. And all of us who who know the coldness and dryness of heart, uh, draw us to the living waters to drink deeply daily, not to uh, content ourselves with uh, languid, floating, purposeless lives, but help us to come to you, draw close to you, that we might burn with desire and be zealous for the Lord in our lives and in our affections. We just thank you so much for what a merciful, patient, gracious, long-suffering God you are, who knows our frame, remembers we are but dust, and gives us of his own life. In Jesus' name, Amen.